How low can Venezuela go? We've been predicting the country's collapse for at least a year, but it's still around. Here to talk us through uh, this week on 35 West, what's going on is Moises Rendon, our resident Venezuela expert at CSIS. Welcome back, Moises. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Um, so, Moises, you were you were first on the podcast back last September along with Mark Schneider. And if you recall, we were talking about the Matrix, mm-hmm. not the movie Matrix, um, but a planning Matrix that you and Mark had developed um, that sort of sketched out the scenarios for Venezuela's future at the time. This is, we're talking last September. And, and I actually went back and listened to that episode. <laughs> and you said, quote, Venezuela is crumbling before our eyes. So think back to last September. Would you ever predicted that last fall that in the middle of July, where we are now, the Venezuela is still crumbling? I mean, it, do we do we reach an end point or – is is the country had this capacity to just keep in this steady state of just you know misery for you know indefinitely? You know, countries really never hit rock bottom, and one of the best examples is Venezuela. And this is a country that uh, has gone through an unprecedented economic, political, humanitarian crisis, not one year, two years ago, but 20 years ago, when Chavez really came into power. Chavez and now Maduro has imposed a systemic um, implosion of the institutions in Venezuela. And as a result, the country today is collapsed. And, you know, I, I was planning just to reiterate how bad the situation is in Venezuela. Mm-hmm. But I'd rather just give our audience, Richard, just fast facts, because I think these fast facts is going to give our audience a, a good idea how bad the situation is today. The average Venezuelan, for example, has lost 24 pounds in the last year. 24 pounds? 24 in pounds. In one year? In one year. That's incredible. 1.8 million Venezuelans have fled the country since 2017. Former eliminated diseases such as tuberculosis, malaria, measles are emerging again, including on the refugee migrant population heading to other countries in the region. So it's a very concerning health risk here in this crisis as well. 300,000 children are at risk of dying due to malnutrition this year in 2018. Also, you have 40,000 percent of inflation in, in a country that also has uh, the, the GDP has declined about 45 percent in, in the last four years. So you're talking about a, a, an economy that is completely collapsed as well. R- Ricardo Hausman, mm-hmm. the Harvard economist, and it calculates the Venezuelan current financial economic crisis 10 times worse than what we saw in the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. So we're talking about 10 times bigger crisis in Venezuela when it comes to economy and financial. Uh, But also, I mean, there are reports from the ground in Venezuela, people breaking into zoos to eat animals because there is just lack of food on the streets. People are starting using pet medicine, dog medicine for themselves. And that's something that just shows you how desperate the population are. Even people are breaking into cemeteries to steal pieces of the graves, uh, including metal metal objects and, you know, uh, bronze letters from the graves. So that just shows you and the, the, how deep the situation has gone in Venezuela when it comes to the humanitarian and economic crisis. So, but, but yet the government stays in power. And although large numbers of people are leaving, not everyone is leaving. So is there... 
is there a functioning black market, for instance, uh, or a barter system where people are still managing, you know, some semblance of a market economy? And then what on earth explains any sort of loyalty to the Maduro regime, even by, you know, former Chavistas and, and supporters of the government? Yeah, there is an important black market, and including my family is using that black market to get food amazing on the table, for example. Unfortunately, that black market um, is only accessible to the very minority of the population, which is about 10% or less. About 90% of the population in Venezuela are um, below the poverty line, as we know it. So, And so they have no money to participate in any sort of market. Exactly. Okay. The only market available for those people, the vast majority of the Venezuelan people, is the market provided by the regime. Mm-hmm. And that's how they have started using food and medicines and other tools, not only food and medicine, to control the population through. So they so they have a system of, you know, they hand out these identity cards. And then um, basically, if you have a government identity card, you get some food, right? T- tell us how that works. And, you know, how does the government use that as a means of control? Yeah, uh, the, the perfect link between food and politics is based in the regime's introduction of what, what they call Carnet de la Patria, or Homeland Identif- Identification Card, which, by the way, has become the main national ID for many Venezuelans now. And this is a federally issued high-tech card and that has become increasingly necessary to access to CLAP, which is the main food distribution system that the regime has imposed, but also to other benefits, healthcare, university, government jobs, even government subsidies provided by Maduro at his total discretion. Uh, so people in Venezuela needs this card to access to all these benefits, uh, quote-unquote benefits, who are, um, you know, di- who di- that diminish their liberties, their political views, and it's actually been, it's become a weaponized tool for the regime to control the people through so many means, especially politically and financially. So you said the card was high-tech. So uh, can I take from that that if... Somehow the government finds out you're in opposition or you've criticized the government in, in any way. Do they have the ability to just turn your card off sort of electronically or how, how does that work? Yes. Uh, the government has complete control over the cars and what the cars provide. Um, and this is a, it's, it's close to what we know in the U.S. as a driver license. It has, it has a picture on it. On it has your name, your identification number. And but it also has a, a like a magnetic strip. Okay, so it om- almost like a credit card that the bank can shut off if you know they think it's something's going on. Exactly, and they they know who is buying what and when, and wow. and that's how they are now uh, controlling the food supply through different markets, through CLAP maybe mainly, but also through private sector groceries market, and they have been imposing. Uh, at the cashiers, when people buy their food and then they go and pay, they, you need to swipe your card to make sure that you haven't bought more food than you should in a previous in in, in a specific day or month. So it's it's, it's t- highly controlled and and the so worst. So they know where you are, what you've been doing. Basically, they can track your movements through the complete card, and the data is is owned by the government. Um, so is this one of the reasons why? You know, we haven't seen a, a civil war break out or a military coup that this instrument of control where, where the government 
basically in exchange for you getting food now knows where you are, where you've been. Uh, are there other dynamics that are, are keeping us from seeing sort of just outright violence on the streets against the government? We we saw what it was close to a civil war, not maybe a civil war, but a civil protest manifestation last year in 2017, in the spring of 2017. And those were about three to four months of continuous protests every day, people going out to the streets, not only in Caracas, but all, uh, all in the main cities in Venezuela. And yet nothing happened. There are many reasons why nothing happened and, and the people just continue to move forward. The regime continued to impose anti policies to control the population. Today we are right now in, in a collapse scenario and, and that brings a, a high risk of having a, a wide open breakout of civil war because people are desperate, public services are collapsed, let, uh, Electricity blackouts are happening every day, all the time. Water is not reaching the population. Transportation is the transportation. The public transportation is completely collapsed. Even the oil supply, cars don't can get gas on their tank. So you, you're complete about you're talking about complete collapse scenario in a country that is desperate for food and means for the most basic necessities. And that's that's where the international community really needs to understand that this is this is not a normal regime as we know. This is a regime that has been using the needs of the people to 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 hold themselves into power in Venezuela. So let's talk about the international community. Uh, last summer, right around the the vote for the Constituent Assembly um, and the, sort of the kind of fraudulent elections, uh, I guess the beginning of this year, right? It seemed like the international community had reached this point of as close to the international community can get in terms of unity and consensus. You had the OAS engaged. You had the Lima group engaged with Mexico and Colombia. United States obviously engaged. But yet it, it just strikes me in the last, I don't know, few months that the international community is almost exhausted or in terms of they're, they're out of ideas or options or, or whatnot. Is that – Am I misreading that, or are we have we seen a lessening of engagement by other countries uh, in Venezuela? And are does it mean that they're just out of tools? Are they out of diplomatic and economic tools to do anything? I, I think you're completely right, Richard. And the international community has um, put the pressure that was needed this year, not last year, but starting to use it this year. And but at the end, it's not going to be enough. And if you don't have an internal pressure strategy and that's where the 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 point the breaking point is um, and the unfortunately for many reasons the opposite the, there is not really an alternative internally in Venezuela the opposition is divided is dismantled mostly because the regime has imposed a lot of tactics and pressures and has banned opposition leaders to participate in any political movement but um, the fact is that there is really not a consistent opposition. There's a desperate population. So what, what's going on in, from the international community is, is there is a very strong sanction regime. But these sanctions regime are not going to achieve its goals if there is not an internal strategy and an internal pressure from the Venezuelan people. And that's where we need to think out of the box here. This is a crisis that needs... Uh, needs something else, needs something new. And that's where I wanted to talk about blockchain too. So uh, we're going to do that. We're going to talk about blockchain. But let me just also ask about um, two specific countries in the region. We've, we've had 
we are having a number of elections this year, um, Colombia, uh, Mexico, Brazil, and Venezuela. But we won't talk about Venezuela because we know those right. elections don't count. <laughs> but the elections in Brazil, we haven't seen yet. But we have had elections in Colombia and Mexico. Let's talk about those two countries individually. Um, are Is a new government in Colombia going to make any difference in, in the Venezuela situation in terms of their reaction or their cooperation with other countries? And then the same question for Mexico, in which we now have a Lopez Obrador government not in power but about to be in power. And they've already signaled that they are probably going to retreat to the old policy of non-interventionism in which they basically stay silent and they don't really participate in things like Venezuela. So are, is the fact of those two elections, is that going to make any difference in the dynamic or are we beyond that? It- it does make a difference at the OAS level, and these are two very important countries, members at the OAS, which has been the only international organization really uh, trying to do something on Venezuela. And Colom- the transition in Colombia is very important, in my view, and especially because the president has close ties with with opposition leaders like Maria Corina Machado, uh, Ivan Duque, uh, understands what Venezuela is going through and understands that this crisis is affecting Colombia's interests as well. And one of the ways that he can help is to um, limit the suffering of the Venezuelan people that are crossing to his, to his country every day, especially at, at the border. Uh, and, I, and I know he's open and willing to, to do more than what uh, has been done so far. So I, I think Ivan Duque is going to have a diplomatic leadership, but as well a humanitarian leadership to help Venezuela uh, in these dark times. But um, in, in Mexico, on the other hand, and is is quite the opposite. We we Mexico has been a leading country when it comes to to increase the pressure on the Venezuelan regime through diplomatic means mainly, no. But now with this switch of of, of administration, we we see Lopez Obrador calling out publicly that he he respects nation sovereignty and he doesn't want to intervene on any type of internal issues, especially on Venezuela now in Nicaragua. And, and I think that's the best case scenario, to be honest, uh, not to do anything. The worst case scenario would be to, to intervene in so favor. To, better to have no AMLO uh, participation than some AMLO participation in those countries. That's exactly. what you're saying. Yeah. Um, okay. Now we're going to talk about blockchain, which I know is, is one of your favorite subjects. Yeah. <laughs> we, we tease you that no matter what the question is, the answer is always blockchain, according <laughs> to you. So. First of all, but before we get into how you think blockchain can help in a situation like Venezuela, I don't want to assume that all of our listeners actually know sort of what blockchain is and how it works. So if you could just give sort of a kind of a simple explanation of blockchain technology, what it is and what it does, and then we'll talk about what it could do in Venezuela. Yeah. Um, blockchain is a digital, decentralized, and distributed ledger. Okay. Stop. What, what does that mean? <laughs> so similar to... What we know from an accounting book, a distributed ledger can record transactions, right? And, and, and not only record transactions, but verify the ownership of this information in this ledger. And, so, and you have this through a network mechanism where computers working together verify each other's transactions and, and they make sure that the transactions are coming from the right owner and is decentralized, it's open, and it's censorship resistant. And, and that's why countries 
that are so closed and so uh, controlled by, by a centralized regime like the Venezuelan can benefit out of this. Um, uh, think, uh, think blockchain as, as a Twitter, not as Twitter. Twitter is is a is a is is, is an application that anyone can use to express themselves. Despite that, Twitter is a centralized database as we know it, and it has benefit communities like the Ara Spring use Twitter to express their discontent of of their regimes, and they organize themselves through Twitter. But blockchain is is it can be the same, but even better because it's, it's decentralized, it's open, and it's public, it's neutral, it's borderless, and it's um, it's censorship resistant. So essentially, you have a network of, as you said, ledgers that it doesn't, uh, you know, no no one node in that network can control the flow of information back or forth because you've got, in theory you know, like thousands or millions of different nodes that all have the exact same information or access to it, and they can all verify whether it's correct or not. So that the theory is that basically this is a great tool for verification, but it's because it's distributed so widely and, you know, not just one central authority has all the information. Correct. That's kind of it, right? Yes. So one application I think a lot of people are familiar with are cryptocurrency, right? That's right. A, blockchain is the underlying technology behind cryptocurrency, but that's only one application of blockchain. Yes, that's correct. I, I actually like to think blockchain and cryptocurrency as separate because people tend to connect them too close together. Okay. And cryptocurrency, it has a different, it, it has a different approach because it, we're talking about digital cash mainly. Okay. And yet, that's the industry that has been most developed today. There are over 2,000 cryptocurrencies in the world right now, and it's only increasing. Bitcoin is perhaps the most important cryptocurrency, the most popular, the widely used one. But there are tons of other ones, including scams. There are cryptocurrencies that are just scams, and people are just using it to 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 make legal acts out of it, but blockchain is the bigger picture one, and this is a technology as we were discussing that is decentralized and is open and is available to anyone who has access to the internet, and, and yet this this technology is not going to bring a silver bullet type of solution to Venezuela or to any other challenge that humanity is facing today. This is a, this, we're still in the very early stages. Um, there are a lot of applications being built as we speak. And, and the potential of this application is, is, is where we should be thinking of and, and how can we use this technology to, to help policy challenges moving forward. So give us some concrete examples of how this technology it would help in a, a situation like Venezuela. We have a failing state. Uh, you really can't trust the government anymore. You can't really trust the financial system anymore. You're not sure how you're going to get um, aid in. How does blockchain going to help any of that? Yeah. No, I mean, we have a regime rejecting any aid coming from abroad in Venezuela. So what can the international community do with that? Well, maybe send cryptocurrency to groups in Venezuela who are distributing that aid inside of Venezuela. And that's already happening. And one concrete example is eat BCH. Which is a young Venezuela that I've been talking to. He he received um, Bitcoin Cash, which is another cryptocurrency, and with that crypto, which is donated by worldwide donors all over the world, and is is using to buy raw food and cook that food to distribute it to 
people in need. So, so you, you, you can use cryptocurrency to distribute aid in an efficient, decentralized, and, and, and borderless uh, and censorship-resistant way into Venezuela. That's so, so just so I understand this, uh, you, know, you or I could buy cryptocurrency here in the U.S. or in, in theory anywhere in the world. We send that through the Internet to a recipient in Venezuela who is then essentially paid – He's got the the resources then to go out and either purchase food or pay people to cook the food and so on. And that has bypassed completely the normal channels of money. He doesn't have to go to a bank to get this. He doesn't have to go to uh, receive it from some government yes, entity. Yes, exactly. If okay. he would have to go through a banking system in Venezuela, he would be blocked by the regime, for example, because there are strict currency controls in place in Venezuela. So it's, it, this is a way to bypass the regime restrictions of, of, of financial restrictions and economic restrictions. And But, Richard, we, we can talk about many other things. Remittances, for example, is the second biggest income in Venezuela after the oil income. Right, right. And remittances can be, it can be used through cryptocurrency as well, and that way it's, it's more direct. Uh, it lowers the cost of remittances, and, and it's just it's, – it's, it will – wider uh, the use of, of, of remittances inside of Venezuela, media. There's an important organization based in Brooklyn called Consensus who is creating this interactive, innovative platform based on Ethereum, and it's called Civil. And, and it's, it's for journalists who are based in Venezuela who can, journalists based anywhere in the world who can publish the reports without the fear of being repressed. And also the, the platform will issue a token for the work as a compensation. So we're talking about endless possibilities here using a, a decentralized technology that can benefit people in, in oppressive regimes. And there are other, many All other right. projects. So the two that I've heard that um, you know offer seem to offer a lot of a promise are in, in property rights and sort of establishing identity uh, for ownership of, you know, in theory anything but let's say land or a car or whatever. And then um, transparency in sort of, um, you know, public spending so that if a government is put out a contract to build whatever, a, a highway, a bridge, a park, that um, – that the bit the blockchain offers us the possibility to verify, sort of look over the government's shoulder and say, okay, I understand where that money went, how it was spent, who got it. Uh, and then on the property rights side, it sort of makes sure that, you know, you own it, – it's the same equivalent of, of, I guess, having a deed, right, in the States yes. or, or in, anywhere else or sort of verification that, that you have some sort of legal claim to a piece of property. Exactly. It's, it's basically a digital deed or a digital confirmation that you own a land somewhere in the world. And this can be used from a local community perspective. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we are not going to need a centralized government uh, laying out who owns what anymore. It's going to be local driven. And Hernando de Soto, a famous Peruvian economist, is leading this effort in the region and in the world. And, and it's and Estonia is perhaps the country that has given uh, most steps forward towards a, a, a decentralization of ownership uh, through blockchain. Procurement, transparency, corruption are big challenges that blockchain can also help. And, 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 and it's basically because it's it, like we 
talk. It's a decentralized, transparent ledger that is um, um, immutable, is, is unhackable. And once you put information in that ledger, you can't really change it. So, so that's why it's a very interesting tool for governments to improve their So let me, j- just so our listeners understand how, just how this would help, uh, applying it to uh, the Venezuela example, let's say you have a corrupt government that can't be trusted. In a situation where I own my house or property, whatever, I, I, I'm depending on a central government authority, maybe it's city hall, to provide me with some sort of document verifying that I own my house or my property or my car. If that government is corrupt and they don't want to give it to me unless I bribe them or they decide I'm a political opponent, they can declare with a piece of paper, right, that I don't own it um, or that, that something happened and it's taken away from me. But with the blockchain, it's like I've got a permanent digital claim yes. on my property and, and the government can't simply declare it doesn't belong to me. Exactly. Anymore. And that digital claim is immutable, it's transparent, right. so it's nobody can mess with it. Yeah. And it's unhackable. Okay. So it's a powerful tool right. that society has now and and I think we from now on we're gonna start implementing these type of tools into the into new policy challenges moving forward. And Venezuela is a great example. Venezuela offers a blank sheet for this type of technology, and that's why the country has become a magnet for all this type of initiative, because you, you have an oppressive regime and, 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 and the decentralization and empowering of the Venezuelan people is, is what the international community should be pushing for through new tools like Because essentially you reach the point where you really have nothing to lose, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so if some of these systems don't work as claimed, it's not probably not going to make the situation worse than it already is. Exactly. And Richard, I mean, it may be the only alternative in Venezuela. Sanctions, I mean, the international sanctions are not going to work by itself. And the opposition is divided and dismantled. It's not unreasonable to to say that the military is bought off. And so really the only, only alternative that we might be facing now in Venezuela is to implement new tools. And technology is offering this, uh, this opportunity with blockchain. So we, we need to th- keep thinking about this and how to use it best. So best case scenario, I guess, at this point is the country collapses, the government goes away. But in the meantime, Venezuela, sort of from the, the grassroots level, has adopted these new technologies and it has a firmer foundation upon which to build you know, a new government, but now using much more advanced tools than, exactly. than other countries have. Yes. Yeah. And that offers a great opportunity for the day after in Venezuela and how Venezuela could become an example and a model for all the other countries in the world. Well, my sincere hope, Moises, is that six months from now or nine months from now, <laughs> we're talking about how we're rebuilding Venezuela and how <laughs> Venezuela is continuing to crumble. Um, but a fascinating potential here for this type of technology, blockchain. And uh, I think, as you said, a lot of uh, groups and organizations are going to use this, uh, can use this as an opportunity to see if, if this really does help. But um, thanks very much for being on the show again and look forward to having you back. Thank you, Richard. Thank you so much. 